0: Hey guys, it's Scott from fxmissions.com. Just a note, I've finished the trilogy of anthologies from the forefront, and all three books are currently available on Amazon.
1: Welcome to From the Forefront, an FX missions podcast with your host, Scott McClelland. Far and wide, and sometimes here at home. These bold and courageous souls that answer the call to missions have a steely metal that insists pioneering be part of their daily routine. Let's gather today and learn from those on the forefront. Here's Scott.
0: Hi, Scott McClelland here for your FX Missions from the Forefront Podcast Special Edition. We've got a book review that we're working on today, and we've got... The great good privilege of being joined by the author of the book we're reviewing, the book title In Good Faith by Scott Shea.
2: Scott, welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me, Scott.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I really appreciate uh the chance to talk to you. We've talked a few times. Your book, I, I gotta say, the first thing that I came in contact about your book was was somewhat impressive. Since then, I've gotten a chance to look add it and read into it it's not a thin book necessarily how long did it take you to write that
2: thing it took me 5 years to write the book because i had a full time <laughs> day job so it, yes it... yes wow
0: well i can well imagine that it did because it, you can clearly see early on in the book that you your thoughts are distilled. This is <laughs> this is something that you've thought through at depth and done a ton of research. So, in good faith, has been recently released. It, do I understand that right? It's been a well, few months now.
2: It's, it has has actually been pretty successful. It's had two print two hardcover printings, and mm-hmm. uh, it just came on paperback. So it's been doing pretty Excellent. well. Excellent.
0: Very very good to hear, and. I appreciate the conversation that you're raising in the book, In Good Faith, and if you'll uh, humor me here, I just want to mention what, how I first came in contact with the book. We, Of course, there was some conversation from your organization, and I was made aware that you went to Google and did, I guess they call it a Google
2: Talk. Yep, I was there. It was, uh, <laughs> it was quite a lot of fun. I was probably one of the few believers in the room. Actually, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, Mm. one of the nice things about writing a book is I've been at Google Talk, which is and at Google where it's primarily folks who think that reason is enough. There's no need to believe in God. I got a lot of interesting questions. I had a lot of really fascinating dialogue. Some of it's on on YouTube, and Mm -hmm. some of it was before and after. I have to say one thing about Google. One thing I've learned, there is no food hall better than going to Google <laughs> that they feed <beat> everybody on. <laughs> Whatever else they're doing, they're, they're every kind of food you can imagine. The cafeteria is well stocked. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then, of course, I've been to other places where I've been to I've been on 700 Club. I've been on at Greek Orthodox churches. I've been in Islamic venues. I've been it's one of the really the treats of writing a book is you get to meet and talk to a lot of different people.
0: Mm. I got to say your book and the premise of your book, though conciliatory, it can be a little bit challenging. And I kind of got this from the Google talk, not that you're being unnecessarily confronted. I, you know, I think there's very even handed approach you're taking to these subjects. But when you go into Google And by the way, we'll backlink to this content of what's on YouTube, at least. When you go into Google and say the prop, you know, a huge problem in our society today is idolatry. Yes. (laughs) I thought we were about to see a biblical event happen there. It was, that was brave. That's almost the only way I can characterize it. And. I would guess you were met with a little stiffness on that subject. I did watch the entire Google talk, but how did you feel in that moment raising the subject of idolatry as a huge societal problem?
2: Well, it's interesting because one of the predecessors, so it's it's a lot of fun doing a Google talk, as I said, and and, and you some of the people who had been there before me were big time Um, atheists, and in some cases, I think idolaters. Uh, Yuval Harari also gave a Google Talk. Okay. And have you read Sapiens or heard of Sapiens and Homo Mm -hmm. Deus and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which I reviewed as well? Anyway, Yuval Harari essentially believes that we're just all random particles that sort of found themselves clung together in this random Mm. universe uh, that's one of the many universes of the multiverse and that there's no god and there's no nothing but when you Mm. really read him deeply and i because i reviewed his book and i've read his other two books pretty well is that he's actually an idolater because Mm. he does worship things and he and he almost gives up the game in his second book where he says homo deus you know god a god is a man becomes god wow and he says that our future gods are going to emerge from silicon valley and he said it actually he said that also at a google talk and <laughs> indeed we do start to worship technology we believe in it we believe in the technology in some cases more than we believe in ourselves i mean just a tiny example of course is if you've ever gone on uh, GPS, you know, people just assume it's right, even if it drives them into a ditch. You give up in a certain kind of way your own thinking when you mm-hmm. rely entirely on certain things. And we rely, we, we also ascribe abilities to ideologies and technologies that they don't really deserve. So, can I mm-hmm. define idolatry? Because this is the thing that people yes. don't get. They think, yeah. oh, idolatry is some quaint bowing down to statues or uh, a Wiccan chance or something like that. But in reality, and if people remember one thing about what I say, and and I heard this afterward in Google Talk actually, and I've heard this elsewhere, is just to remember this: idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings. You and me, individuals, Mm -hmm. ideologies, or natural processes. And so we may have thought that, you know, after the God King Pharaoh, that we licked idolatry. But in reality, the whole 20th century was a catalog of God King Pharaohs. Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Hitler, and it goes on and on. And they all use the same tropes as the God King Pharaoh. Pageantry, poetry, myths, Mm -hmm. songs—all backed up with powerful armies and secret informers. And whatever the god king says, whatever Pharaoh said was was law. He said, "Throw the Israelite baby boys into the into the uh, Nile," then that's what happened. And if he said, "Murder his own people or murder the Israelites," that's what happened. Well, the same thing. Look at Stalin. Stalin starved the Ukraine killed a quarter of the people in the Ukraine through starvation, wow. killed all the Kulaks, sent tens of millions to uh, the Gulag, and nobody mm. ever questions his authority. Indeed, he had his image, the Soviet Space Agency broadcast his image into space. Mao is responsible for the deaths of 75 million of his comrades, and he said that... It would be okay if 300 million is ascribed to a said that 300 million had died to ensure the future of the Communist Party. So you have all these people that have super authority. Nobody questions a Hitler. Nobody questions a Mao or a Stalin. And to a certain degree, we do that in, in a macro way. As I said, the whole 20th century was about that. But if you think about it, we do it in a micro way. So how did, in our intimate encounters, how did Harvey Weinstein, um, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Kevin Spacey, and it goes on and on. How did they get away with what they got away with? Well, they set themselves up as idols. They were unquestioned and unquestionable within their industries. And so Mm. if Charlie Rose said someone was lying at CBS about something related to his abuse of them, well, that was truth. And so idolatry is all over and that's one of the points I make in my book and I think I actually got people not just at Google but at other venues saying whoa I need to like think about that one maybe I'm not a believer but am I an idolater
0: Wow yeah I, I thought you did that with some finesse at the Google talk and obviously you you've you've spent a fair amount of time investing in the understanding of this but the the ascribing superpower to the finite, that's idolatry. And even if we don't, you know, like you say, we don't get out these some mantras and maybe candles we're burning to a statue or an image or something of those kinds, it still qualifies as uh, an exaltation, if you will, of the finite in a way that gives it authority beyond that scope. That is Clearly, <laughs> something you've uh, cultivated an understanding on, and I think there's a lot more, I, even just in the preface of your book, you you really make those things clear. One of your statements that you made was, is to truly understand idolatry is to reject it, or to understand the true nature of idolatry is to reject it. That was one of my favorite statements from the early part of your book, and I think that's true. But how do we get our arms around idolatry in what is you know it's a pretty materialistic or naturalistic society around us in terms of thought, scientific or reason, reasonable, reason based. So this is a confronted subject to me, and I'm. But you know, you're kind of an unlikely guy in a lot of ways to write a book like this. I don't mean that in any confronted way, but you're a businessman. I am. I yeah. I so started you're, a bank. And that to me seems impossible. So (laughs) clearly it's not. You've done it. But tell us a little bit about your backstory. There are some other things on the backstory I want to unpack with you. But tell us about your business and and kind of your day-to-day life and maybe the inspiration for this book. I know it's not your only book, and I know there's another one in queue. What inspired you as um, the Scott Shea that you are to tackle this?
2: So maybe I will go all the way back. We were talking about this a little bit before the show, and I I think this book has been brewing in me since I was in the single digits because Mm. I grew up in Chicago, the son of a Holocaust survivor. So my backstory really, in a way, was heavily influenced by my father's backstory. He was a not-quite-14-year-old in Svexner, Lithuania, in 1939 when the Nazis came in and Mm. they proceeded to murder his father. They murdered his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, his brothers. His mother had previously died in childbirth, giving birth to one of his brothers who was slaughtered. And Mm. he ended up being first sent for slave labor because he was a, he was a really robust guy By the time he was liberated, he was less than 70 pounds. He was in the 60s of pounds. And probably days, at most weeks, certainly not even many months away from death. So he had the great fortune to be liberated by the American forces in Dachau, who who liberated Dachau. And they put him in in an army hospital. And he wasn't really strong enough to get out for just about a year. Wow. He was in terrible shape. But by the way, luckily they didn't just feed him. You know, they at that point they knew if you just fed the liberated concentration camp inmates, they would die because their their bodies had forgotten how to digest real food.
1: Oh, so my.
2: he was so fortunate and then he ended up in Chicago. He ended up marrying, ended up having a child, me. And throughout his life he knew, unlike many people. He didn't have faith in God. He knew there was a God because Hmm. he knew there were so many teeny tiny things that if they would have gone the other direction, if he would have been one foot forward, one foot back, one foot to the side, he would have been murdered. If he would have been arbitrarily, I mean, not just standing, sitting, the time that he would walk somewhere, He would have been murdered. I mean, it was just so, there were so many close, close calls so that he knew it was a miracle when he got to Chicago and was able to rebuild a life. But what was also problematic for my father was that he was angry at God because God had done these hidden miracles to get him through. But what about his father? What about all of his, almost everybody he knew growing up was dead. And so I had, a, I had to work that through myself via my father. And, and how does it, good God, let such evil happen? And that was a story throughout his entire life. So this book has been percolating in me since then. And, mm. and there were some things that we can talk about that actually got me specifically to writing the book but it's been percolating in me a long time and and that's why when i started writing this book it became a passion and that sustained me for 5 years of writing because oh, it's wow. it's not easy writing a book and it's not easy yeah. writing this book cuz it needed research it needed work mm. i wanted it to be able to stand up and it has been even in colleges where people Read Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Mm -hmm. Harris—all the you know the big name New Atheists.
0: To your point, there you were saying that the book stand is standing up well in universities where the parade of New Atheists are making their voices heard. How is the book standing up in that context? What kind of feedback are you getting?
2: So I've spoken at a few universities. There, that's akin to speaking at a Google, in that (laughs) I really do get challenged. And I I hear this from students, not in the main discussions, but they more or less say, and I'll summarize it this way. They don't say it exactly this way, but they get to college, and those who are believers say that they encounter professors who tell them, oh, you're a believer. Well, don't worry. We're here to educate you, and you can stop clinging to the superstitions of your parents we're gonna teach you why none of that makes sense. Why it's all bunk. And and that's the position. Wow. I mean, it's such yeah. a anti religious it's not just neutral, but it's right. really anti-religious in many and yeah. so what I'm what's happening is I'm getting I well this year not so when it was in the last academic year. I guess the last one I did was in February of this year. Wow, time flies. Mm. And people are organizing sort of readings. I mean, I have to be, I'm really actually uh, thrilled. Some people have, yeah. have, have like gotten together with others to read the book sort of section by section. There are six sections yes. and it's beginning to take hold. And I'm also finding that parents are buying the book for their kids because the kids are coming home after a semester, although I don't know what's happening this, um, this year, but kids yeah. are coming home and saying, well, I was a believer. I had one person A parent tell me that their child had gone to 12 years of Catholic school and only had a couple of semesters at Georgetown, nonetheless, Mm. Mm. and came back an atheist. Oh, my. Because they took comparative religion, which essentially says a lot of stuff uh, about religion that doesn't necessarily make sense. And they read as part of that class, Richard Dawkins. And Richard yeah. Dawkins, the God delusion, convinced him that it was all bunk. Wow! But I get the good and the, the fun thing for me is I get people who are totally start as atheists. And I don't, you know, you, I'm not trying to convert anybody. I really am not. I mean, it, the stakes are so high for people that trying to sit down and I don't debate per se. I have had one debate. I debated Michael Shermer, which was a lot of fun. That's also on YouTube somewhere who's written a lot of atheist books. But I don't, de- I right. don't generally debate people. But if I can give mm-hmm. them doubts about their doubts, then they can start an, their own journey and see if they become, right. if, if faith makes sense to them or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate the open-handed approach that you take with the book, because I I get the feeling that that's going to be more effective in opening the conversation about faith. And you do a thorough job, I think, to the point I'm at, you do a thorough job of explaining why reason and faith aren't necessarily opponents. You want to not well. talk to that a little bit? What can you say in brief there about how reason and faith are not necessarily mutually exclusive?
2: So first of all, people tell me constantly, they I get this question, particularly in venues like universities and Google, isn't, isn't reason enough? I mean, we have Kant. We have the moral imperative. We have these moral philosophers. We have Peter Singer, who is an atheist moral philosopher. Aren't these enough? And the problem is, the answer to that is, or not the problem, the answer is no. Reason can get you into a whole lot of trouble. And it has historically. I mean, look, communism was essentially an atheist reasoned, I would say idolatry, started by Marx. I mean, he was able to rationalize just about everything because if the most important thing is the supremacy of the party if the most important thing are these ideas of the proletariat or these and the bourgeois and the class struggle well killing all the kulaks that makes sense i mean gosh i'm not exaggerating look that's how we got it that's how and that's in china the cultural revolution you know that made sense to mao yeah and you know in cambodia pol pot Thought that anybody who was wearing glasses was an intellectual and acting against the, the peasant class. So you had anybody who wore glasses murdered. I mean, uh, you can't even make this up. Reason yeah. can lead you to a whole lot of bad places. Peter Singer is the leading moral philosopher for atheists. And he's mm-hmm. not a bad guy, doesn't seem like a bad guy if you meet him or or the like, but he has to have some sort of principles. So his principles are sort of like a little bit the Jeremy Benthamy, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number. So you would say in our society, most of the cost of medical care are for the very old. And yet they're not having much in the way of quality of life. And he would say, also, you have people who were born with grave disabilities, and they're not going to have much of a quality of life. So if we eliminate having to pay for all of those excess costs, we'll be okay. So he writes in his book that it's okay, in in all of his books, actually, it's okay to euthanize babies if they're going to have a substantial burden on society. And... He doesn't quite say, although he's protested frequently by by folks who have various disabilities, because by inference he's okay with you know eliminating the burden on society of all sorts of people with all sorts of disabilities. Mm-hmm. He's a nice guy. He doesn't seem like a bad guy. He's very reason, but people just dis- confuse reasonableness with reason. It's a mm. big difference. So. I talked to a medical director of a major insurance company who said to me that the United States, if it stopped giving beyond routine care to anybody over 75 years old in under 30 days, that we could save more than 20% of U.S. healthcare costs, and that would be enough to essentially give free education, free college education to everybody. Mm. So that's maybe what we ought to – ought to be on the table. Now, if you think it's okay to let anybody over 75 just die if they need something more than antibiotics, and you think it's okay not to have neonatal centers because young babies sometimes have enormous costs, well, Mm -hmm. I guess it makes sense. I mean, (laughs) even, even Richard Dawkins doesn't like to say this, but he does. I mean, he's written it, and he doesn't like to put too fine a point on it, but he also agrees with infanticide, if, if there's going to be a very severely disabled mm-hmm. baby that's going to have a life of disability and yeah. that baby should just be put to death. That's where reason can lead you. It led to the gulag. It led to the Cultural Revolution. It led, unfortunately, concentration camps.
0: Yes. Yeah. A lot of those ideas of kind seem to recycle, you know, and we end up Society and history ends up with untold horror that we can get to with reason. But you you approach those guys in conversation. The reason, you know, they're, you're saying yep. there's a place for reason and it's not the place that faith you know, inhabits. And there's a place for faith. And it's not necessarily reason in itself, but they collaborate, I think, is your point. And there's, you know, don't throw away your mind because you've got faith, but don't throw away your faith because you have a mind.
2: Well I, that's exactly that well. you, you yeah. nailed it. And and that's mm. what I try to argue is that people try to say, Well, we have reason, it's enough. It's not. You it can reason can lead you to all sorts of bad places. But and unfortunately, people who just believe in reason frequently morph into idolatries of different things, you know, the science, the technology, the communism, the ideology. I mean, science can do a lot of good stuff. And I'm a I love science. I love, you know, having, I'm glad I can have surgery with antibiotics and anesthesia. Yes. And that, you know, <laughs> we're able to talk on this podcast. Those are wonderful. But right. you have to, but science is what it is. It's it's a tool that we can use. The thing that people, for the thing that I'd say to, to atheists is I say the core idea, Hillel, the an ancient sage said, you can sum up the whole Bible by the following. Don't do unto someone else what you wouldn't want done unto you. The rest is commentary. Go learn it. So (laughs) Stalin would have not wanted to send himself to the Gulag. Mao wouldn't have wanted to send himself to the Gulag. And anybody who's using reason, if they just stop at the golden rule and the Hebrew scriptures, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Christian scriptures, it says the same thing. In the Hebrew scriptures, mm-hmm. and for those who know Hebrew, to korecha Kamocha, very sincere, succinct. Love your neighbor as yourself. And mm-hmm. if you do that and you and if you use the most modest form of the golden rule, I think that's really the secret. And that's and so for atheists who are adherence to the golden rule, I can actually make common cause with them. But for those whose reason lead them down the path of, well, I can make decisions for others or decide who should live and who should die, I mean, when there's got to be someone who makes that decision. And for Peter Singer and for others, that person ends, ends up becoming a god. I mean, Hitler started killing, murdering people when he started having... The disabled Germans murdered. I mean, the first use of gas to murder people in the so-called showers was on disabled German citizens. And then, of course, it grows.
0: Yeah, the useless eaters, I think, was one way they were characterized in that particular situation. Very alarming.
2: And And non-human. See, that's the key here is that the Jews, too, were called, he called them vermin. In other words, the golden rule didn't apply to them. You could treat them however you want to treat them because that reason, in that case, leads you astray. You need ultimately, see, I believe that we're all, and the Bible starts out this way, we're all endowed with a divine spark, you know, but sell a That's what it says in Eber. Everybody gets this little divine spark, and so we have to treat everybody with that little, Recognizing everybody else has it, and we're supposed to search for it too. I think, mm. yeah. But yeah. Uh, but for for atheists, as long as everybody at least has humanity, I'm okay. As long as you yeah. don't view that disabled person as being less than human, or that Jew as being vermin, or someone of another race, creed, or kind being not human. That's what the why the Bible started with us all being brothers and sisters, you know. Yeah. Figuratively brothers and sisters.
0: Yes. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And I think you work hard to find common ground, you know, with monotheistic perspectives. And obviously you're looking also, I think, and try hard, like you're saying here, to find common ground that in our humanity, because it's something we all share. I think you've done a great job on that. And I appreciate you being diligent to do that because it was not simple and it probably wasn't the easiest way to approach it, but I think it represents you well. And I appreciate that aspect of the book for sure. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Thank you. That was, that was the hard road, but you took it and you, and you, you managed it well. I think so often, you know, as people of belief, we're trying to do everything we can to remove the tension from our own our own worldview. And it causes us to end up in weird places where we also, maybe we don't technically dehumanize others, but we certainly look at them in a way that I think makes their creator something less than our creator in terms of the way we view others who have a different worldview or perspective. So the value you, you ascribe to everyone in the conversation extremely appreciated from my point of view, and it's beautifully done. I appreciate that. I've got a question here, and we're we're coming to the last five or so minutes of our time together, but what do you hope that your book contributes, and what do you hope that your book doesn't contribute Mm -hmm. or doesn't do?
2: Well, what I want people to be able to do, people who are having doubts, people who are being told that it's irrational to believe in God, that my book helps them, in that you don't have to park your brain at the door to believe in God. You're not clinging to the superstitions of your parents by believing in God, that indeed, it's rational to not believe. I'm not gonna argue that it's not rational, but it's at least as rational to believe as well, and I think the evidence is greater for a... Omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omnipotent God. So I'd like my book to at least put God and belief back on an even setting for many people in the intelligentsia in the United States and Mm. elsewhere. What don't I want my book to do? I would say I don't want it to lead to arguments. And I tried very hard. If you, you read my book, you know I always state the atheist argument first. Because I think you have to give respect to the other person. I mean, sometimes I have gone into discussions where I'm dismissed almost because uh, I say I'm a believer. Where people have a chip on their shoulder. I really don't want to do that, and I try to de it's not a matter of de escalation. It's a matter of treating the other person in a way you would want to be treated mm-hmm. with respect. And yes. even if the person isn't a believer, to recognize that uh, they have a divine spark, and it's my job is to search that out. So yeah. I hope my book doesn't lead to arguments. I really don't want it to, you know, to do that. And I don't think it does yeah. by and large.
0: No, it hasn't. I don't seem, find it argumentative, but it is extremely well researched. I know you, you join hands with a lot of people of faith and also yeah. a, a lot of people of reason to come to the places that you came to and to get, the breadth that you accomplished—that was an exercise in appointments, if nothing else. You oh, yeah. you saw a lot of people and spent a lot of time, and yeah. and I think you saw it really
2: carefully to understand their point of view. Yeah, I talked to cardinals and bishops and people who were evangelical, and imam across the Catholic spec across the Protestant spectrum. I really wanted to get folks who had thought deeply about these issues. And I have to tell you, that was a tremendous uh, pleasure doing that. It was one of the really, also really uh, benefits of writing this book was getting to sit down with a Cardinal Dolan or with a Reverend Dr. Calvin Butts or the like, uh, Imam Shamsi Ali. Those were really Hmm. special times.
0: Yeah, to the point that I've reached, and I'll have to report in after I've completed the book, but just now I haven't done it. But that was some of my favorite stuff that you included some of what you went through to get to the point that you got to. And I, I'm sure you guys had influence on each other. Not that maybe you changed you changed their total perspective or they totally changed yours, but you definitely were in an environment of res- mutual respect and contribution. So it kind of filled in some of the the blanks for you in terms of what you're exposed to. Let's talk for just a sec here. You you actually had mentioned, if you don't mind, you've got another book in the pipe. And I, I realize these things don't come out when you push two buttons and boom, yeah, there it oh is. Yeah, wow. Especially as researched and as disciplined as you were with with the material. But would you give us just a little bit of a coming attractions?
2: What are you going to write sure. on next? So my first book was on the American Jewish community. That was my first book. My second Mm -hmm. book was written for everybody. And my third book, I hope, please God, that I can finish it and write it, is is actually grew a little bit out of being at universities Mm -hmm. and hearing what folks were saying about religion, about truth, about canceling others, cancel Mm -hmm. culture. I picked up a lot more than I was actually expecting. Mm. And so I'm working on that book. I'm still in the writing phase, though. So it's it's I wouldn't say early in the process, but it's not late either.
0: <laughs> it, it makes sense. I'm I'm gathering content for a book myself, and <laughs> it's been a number of years. i got to say that I've got most of my content together, but. It's still not a book. And you know, you more than most know exactly what I mean. Oh, about I do. It, it, what a process it is. I, I take my hat off to anyone who tackles uh, writing a book and who wants to make their perspective visible. You know, it's a courageous undertaking. You got to pull up your courage to go on record and fairly transparently, as you have. That means a lot. And I thank you for not only for just generally taking those steps, but also specifically with with what you've tackled here. And I really appreciate it.
2: Well, I'll give you one piece of advice, though. Uh, I'll give you one piece that that helped me through the five year period is I have a mentor, Carolyn Hessel, who um, for many years was the head of the Jewish Book Council. And mm. she said, every time you sit down and you're going to watch a baseball game or you're going to watch a football game or start doing something else, just think of me on your shoulder saying, Books don't write themselves. <laughs> um, so I always had for five years, I had this vision of Carolyn Hessel, who um, is just a, she's mentored so many authors um, mm. over her. She's retired, but now, but she's mentored so many authors. And I had this vision of her saying, scott books don't write themselves and it would like get me up from you know just sort of vegging out or okay i've got two right. hours i'm sitting down i'm gonna do it so that's that's part of it
0: i'm gonna um, take that as direct and I, i'm gonna superimpose you there if that's okay that's I'm, fine. I'm gonna put you because i know you better than i know i uh, No, no I'm gonna, what? scott Shay she- said they don't write themselves yeah I just want to get any final thoughts that come to mind for you. And then as we're wrapping, I want to make sure and let people know where they can find more information. We'll, of course, put backlinks in the show notes so that folks can click through to get get a copy, a hard copy, paperback, or digital, whatever, in whatever form that the person prefers. Any parting thoughts before we get those details
2: from you? Before we get that, I would just say that it's a matter of... And the book, to me, is a matter of engaging. I wrote it so that people can read it cover to cover. But as you know, I also wrote it where, and I've had people contact me on this, where it's well indexed and well, and the chapters are broken up. So if you have a specific question, like, how do we reconcile God and evolution or God and creation? Or does the Bible really, you know, was it just made up by shepherds who had too much time in there? You can go to the chapter headings to the table of contents and say, okay, this is what I need to know now because it's bothering me or someone's asked me this question. Or what about the bad stuff in the Bible? I have a whole section on that. And that's been very helpful to people. So we didn't touch on that, but that's, the, I'm, I'm really, I do get emails from people who are glad that it's, who haven't read the whole book, but they've read two chapters because that's what bothered them.
0: Yes. I noticed very early on that you do have quite an index. So very good for people who need to get somewhere quickly or just refer to what you've spoken about on a specific subject. Of course, you've arranged it in subsets or I think you said it was six subsets you've got Six sections. uh, Of information. So that, yeah, so it can be tackled in pieces. And it, you'll want to do that, guys, because it's a, it's a sturdy volume. True. I don't know the page count off the top. Not the longest book I've read, but it competes really well, I think. Very, very good. Where can we send people if they want to know more? Your website, you know, if they want to be more in contact with the content, if they want to get a copy, where do sure. we send those guys?
2: So first of all, they can go to my website, scottshea.com where there's a whole bunch of content on the book. Mm-hmm. There's book discussion group PDF pamphlets, because it's being used for discussion groups right now with mm-hmm. book club type of groups. And so you can find that all at scottshade.com. Uh, you'll be able to find this podcast at scottshade.com too. And other podcasts, the Google Talks, the 700 Club, all sorts of things. My debate with Michael Shermer. Basically, you can you, you can find a lot of content on there without even reading the book. <laughs> but the book is widely available. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's in physical bookstores as well, to the extent that they're open, depending on the part of the country. But it's currently being sold and available. Mm-hmm. But Amazon is the easiest way to buy it, unfortunately. They make it too easy. But I've been directing yeah. people yeah. to independent bookstores, too, just to support them but now it's yeah. harder. I would also say this, the yeah. audio is, you mentioned it came out in paperback just now. It's in hardcover. It's in Kindle. But the audio version, for those who have audiobooks and the like, has been actually very popular as well. And I didn't do the narration because I didn't think I had good enough voice, but a guy by the name of Andrew Totalis, who some people may know, he's got a little bit of a name for himself. And uh, he read the book and, and, and it's quite pleasant to listen to.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And I'll look for that as well, because that's one of the ways with all my moving around that I get a chance at more content when I don't have a time to sit and read as much being busy. So I totally I'll look for that as well. And we'll backlink to that content here. Thank you so, so very much, Scott Shea, not only for writing your book, but for coming on to our From the Forefront podcast and talking about it. I really appreciate it. And we we hope to uh, point people to you that uh, can benefit from this content. What a blessing. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it as well to be here and to have this opportunity to talk with you.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you. I am Scott McClellan from your From the Forefront podcast. Find us at fromtheforefront.com. If you'd like to know about me or us or what we're up to, please send an email to info at fxmissions.com. Until next time, have a good one.
1: been listening to from the forefront hosted by fx missions scott mcclelland if you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like more information on today's guest please go to our facebook page at facebook.com slash fx missions please rate our show on itunes or your favorite podcast provider If you know someone who should be a guest on our podcast, we're currently reviewing candidates for upcoming episodes. Please submit their name, affiliation, and an essay of why their story needs to be told to info at fxmissions.com. And of course, you can always follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website at fxmissions.com. From Scott McClelland and the whole team here at FX Missions, thanks for listening. Till next time, have a great day.